have to say, um, I am just encouraged uh, to be here at this time at Osterville Baptist Church. Uh, Katie and I, uh, we, we dared greatly back in 2010, and we went to this place from Chicago called Osterville in Barnstable. And, um, you know, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into at that time when we made that big move. But I'll tell you, looking back, we don't regret one second of it. This is an awesome church. And really, as you think about our story, that's what we're celebrating. If you call Osterville Baptist Church your home, our story is your story too. It's a story of God working in a place here in the village of Osterville for over 188 years, but it's also a story that's incorporated into God's grand story, the story of redemption. We get to play a part in that, and we also get this opportunity right now as a church to dare greatly for the future. And believe that as we make a thick commitment today, that God is going to take the loaves and multiply them for the future. I'm convinced of that. In fact, as I think about our story and about what we're embarking upon, I don't think that there's anything that we're imagining for the future that's big enough for what God intends to do. I really believe that. So this week, as we talk about our story I want to begin by just asking you, you know, if you think about the worst financial decision in history, what would you say that is? Now, when I think about money, I have to say I've made some bad decisions with money. Um, I'm sure if I was to do a quick straw poll around the room and ask people to raise their hands, I'm sure many hands may sheepishly go up and say, yeah, I've probably made a bad decision with money or two. In fact, the reason I think that is, is because if unless you were raised by like Warren Buffett or a financial CPA or something like that, you probably learned about money through the school of hard knocks. Am I right? Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, I've never made a bad decision with money. I have. I've made really bad decisions with money. And you know, I don't even think that that's what I want to get into this morning. I don't think that's the worst financial decision in history. I don't think it's some of the big Ponzi schemes that we've seen recently in history, like FTX, Sam Bankman Freed, who somehow laundered uh, tons of money through cryptocurrency. I'm not even thinking about that. No, when I think about the worst financial decision in history, I think of two verses found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let's turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 9 and 10. The verses are on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows." As you're processing those two verses, it might be tempting to kind of shut your mind off now and say, oh, whew, 
this sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich and I don't love money. So I'm all set this morning. Let me just kind of debunk that a little bit. Um, First, when it comes to this idea of being rich, I want to suggest that there may have been some concept creep that has occurred today. In fact, I would imagine that what Paul's thinking of when he's saying the word rich is not what we think of when we say the word rich. And I also want to suggest that it's not worth debating the topic of what is rich and what is not, because everybody has a different definition. But I would like to diagnose something with you this morning. Do you and do I love money? Look again at those verses real quick. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith. It turns out that that's a really important question to be asking ourselves. Uh, if you care about your soul, <laughs> you need to ask yourself that question. Look at what it does to people. And Jesus himself said, what does it profit somebody if they gain the whole world and then they forfeit their soul? You know, when you look at Jesus's ministry, you will notice if you're really looking closely that he talks about money perhaps more than anything else that he talks about in he, when he's teaching and when he's advising and when he's given counsel. Why is that? Why does he do that? I recently read a book called The Psychology of Money, and the author said something that helped me to better understand perhaps why Jesus gets into money. Uh, this is by Morgan Housel, and he says, Money is everywhere. It affects all of us and confuses most of us. It offers lessons on things that apply to many areas of life, like risk, confidence, and happiness. Few topics offer a more powerful magnifying glass that helps explain why people behave the way they do than money. This is his conclusion. He says, it is one of the greatest shows on earth. So we really need to get to the bottom of this question. Do you, do I love money? And I want to suggest this morning that it is a hard question to decipher. So we're going to ask a series of questions. My first question for you this morning is, does my spending appear crazy to you? When you look at the fact that Katie and I sleep in tents in the summer in order to raise a little more money, do you think that guy is crazy? What's wrong with him? Why would he do that? <laughs> Amen. You know, when it comes to this question, the way that people spend money is so personal and so different. How I spend money appears crazy to you, and guess what? The way you spend money appears really crazy to me, too. It does. We all approach it differently. It turns out 
that the factors that influence the way you spend money tend to be the generation you were born into, your family background, your country of origin, and probably the most significant factor is what you experienced with respect to money in your formative years. I was reading about the lottery system. And it's been said that the lowest income households in the United States of America on average will spend $412 per year on lottery tickets. Um, when you go into research, you learn that 40% of Americans cannot afford to save up a $400 emergency fund, and yet they're able to spend $400 on lottery tickets. Now, when I think about that personally, coming from my background, I say, that's just insane. Why? Why would you take a sure thing, having an emergency fund, and bet that sure thing on a one in a million chance? You know what? It turns out that I don't come from that background. Maybe they're thinking differently than I am. In fact, I listened to one guy express his why. He said, we live paycheck to paycheck. We can't afford nice vacations, new cars, health insurance, or homes in safe neighborhoods. We can't put our kids through college without crippling debt. Buying a lottery ticket is the only time in our lives that we're actually holding a tangible dream of getting the good stuff that you get to enjoy. We are paying for a dream. And I hear that and I'm like, ugh, still don't agree with it, still don't think it's a great decision, but now it's starting to sound a little less crazy to me. You know, Housel says this, that every financial decision a person makes makes sense to them in the moment. They tell themselves a story about what they're doing and why they're doing it, and that story has been shaped by their unique experiences. And I have to say, as a, an outside observer, when I listen to people talk about their money, that's true. There's always a reason why we're doing what we're doing. But here's what we have to admit to ourselves this morning it's far more likely that our spending habits are rooted in our lived experience than in God's word. What stories are you telling yourself about money? I want to suggest as a pastor, I listen to a lot of people talk. I think it's important to hear people. I hear a very common story that people are telling themselves today. I call this story the story of scarcity. Now, what is this story of scarcity? Well, scarcity says that there's never enough. I would suggest that scarcity is not greed-based, but it is more fear-based and anxiety-based. Scarcity looks into the future and it fears that there will not be enough then even though there's plenty right now. Scarcity can have abundance and yet still feel empty. 
Scarcity is driven, but it's never satisfied. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you told yourself the story that when I achieved this income bracket, well, now I'll feel better about myself and I'll have more life to live and I'll be happier. But then you got there and then you thought, oh boy, but now there's another income bracket that I could get to. What if I got there? Here's one simple way to analyze if you're telling yourself the story of scarcity. Does your standard of living always keep pace with your income? Now, this is not a foregone conclusion. <laughs> Just because my income increases doesn't need, I need, mean I need to trade in the old model and upgrade it for the new model as soon as it does. You see, scarcity wants to trap your thinking. Scarcity wants you to focus on the things that you don't have, uh, things that you're lacking, and it wants you to just get to thinking about getting those things. But let me interrupt the story of scarcity for you this morning and ask you a question. When do you know that you have enough? How do you know that you have enough? When will it be enough? Now remember, I can't answer that question for you this morning because I already think that the way you spend your money is crazy. <laughs> Andrew Carnegie is perhaps the original rags to riches story in the United States of America. He came here very poor and at his pinnacle, he had so much wealth that he represented 2% of the United States' gross domestic income. Carnegie started off life very poor. He watched his dad go through bankruptcy, and his story that he started saying to himself was, I'm never going to wind up like that. That's not happening to me. And so he begins to build his little empire. He begins to build his wealth. It turns out that when he was a young man, he actually had some pretty noble ambitions for his life. They actually found in amongst his possessions a little list of goals after he had died. And he said this in his goals. I will spend the first half of this life accumulating money, and I will spend the last half of this life giving it all away. Huh. Sounds altruistic, but then he made the worst financial decision in history. He got away from his goals. He let the scarcity story drive him to work longer and work harder. In fact, Carnegie, instead of being known as a philanthropist for much of his life, was called a robber baron. You know why? Because he drove people into the ground with work. He had people working 364 days a year. He kept shrinking wages. The second a new piece of technology came out, he replaced workers. Later in his life, he started telling himself a better story. He writes a book called The Gospel of Wealth. And this is his grand conclusion when it comes to money. He says, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. 
You want to know why scarcity is such a bad story to be telling yourself? It's because when you tell yourself this story, you begin stockpiling unrealized good intentions. You know, James talks about how we can get as believers into a place of what I would just call bad faith. And he describes it like this in chapter 2. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? And that's a really good question. What good is that? It's just a good intention. You know what scarcity tells you? And it's a really wise piece of counsel when you hear it. It really sounds wise. It tells you just wait. Just wait a little longer. Build a little bit more. I know you have these really genuine desires on your heart to do good things for other people, but you can build more wealth, and then when you do that, you can be more generous at that point. The problem is, is it just keeps giving you that piece of counsel. It never interrupts the story. I see in Scripture, though, the best time to be generous and to give is today. It's not sometime in the distant future. Jesus said it like this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And another thing that he said, Paul quotes him in Acts, Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. It's a much different story than the story of scarcity. Now, I want to ask one more question, and I think that Paul gives us this question in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Once again, he's talking to the rich, and he says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Not to be proud, not to trust. Does the Bible ever say that it's sinful to have abundance? No. I can't find that message anywhere in the Bible. In fact, some of the people that are put forward as heroes of faith are people like Abraham, who had lots of abundance. Queen Esther. Joseph, who made it to number two in all of the land of Egypt. King David. These people experienced abundance in their life. So I want to suggest that the Bible makes a much different distinction when it comes to wealth. And the distinction is, are you rich or are you wealthy? Well, what's the difference between those two things? Well, let's talk about the mindset of being rich. Rich people spend money in order to maintain an appearance. Rich people care more about looking rich than actually even being rich. A, a rich person may not even have a very high net worth. They might be house rich. 
They might be cash poor. A rich person might have lots and lots of debt that they have amassed because they're constantly spending more than they make in order to maintain an appearance or a certain lifestyle. And here's what happens. When it comes time to give, they're giving craters because they're so extended looking rich. Now, a wealthy person, on the other hand, does not place all of their value on appearance. Now, certainly, they don't go and like take a mud bath and go walking around. They care about how they look. They might drive a nice car. It might be a quality car, but they're not spending beyond their means. And when it comes to biblical wealth, a wealthy person doesn't say, this is my money. They don't look at their money as their money. They begin to understand that they're a steward of a very, very rich God who has entrusted things to them. And so their ambition in life and their drive in life is to hear words from him, like Jesus says in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. The wealthy person gives because it makes them so happy to do it. They see the bigger picture. They see what God's doing around the world. They, they believe that they get to participate in that. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud. As you go into our context, the United States of America, are most American Christians rich or wealthy? According to these standards. I'll just let that one simmer a little. Andrew McNair wrote a very good book called The Giving Crisis. He says, in almost every measurement possible, wage growth, disposable income, income to debt ratio, total household income, unemployment rate. Americans are thriving financially. We may be the richest civilization that has ever existed in human history, and yet languishing in generosity. So we are not in a financial crisis. We are in a giving crisis. So perhaps Perhaps the love of money does have a stronger grip on us than we realize. But I want to suggest that our story could be so much better than the story of scarcity. See, our story is a story where, and you see Christians doing this, you see Christians around the United States of America who catch a better vision for money. It's a story where, you know, things that we see around us that break our hearts like poverty and, and people in human need, like those things could actually be met with real resources in real time. It's a far better story than the story of scarcity. Paul tells this better story in verses 17 through 20 to Timothy. He says, teach those who are rich in this world, not to be proud and not to put their trust in their money, which is so unreliable. 
Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up for their, up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. So our story as a church, must be the story that Paul is describing here. It's a story of generosity, not scarcity. You know, the generous heart is the opposite of the scarcity brain. The generous heart feels full. The generous heart does not worship a God of scarcity, a withholding God. The generous heart believes, as Paul says there, that our God richly supplies every single one of our needs, and so I can trust him with my resources. The scarcity brain produces anxiety in the human heart. The generous heart produces the peace of contentment. And Paul tells us a testimony about this in the book of Philippians. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know, as you navigate Scripture, you'll see Scripture actually place these two stories side by side all along the way. Scarcity, generosity. It's trying to show us something about our worship and about our hearts. One of my favorite stories that does this is found in John chapter 12. Give you a little bit of the context. It's at Mary and Martha's and Lazarus's house. And this is just after John 11 where Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And Mary comes and she just pours out her love and her heart and her devotion to Jesus. The text tells us that she anoints his feet with ointment made out of pure nard. She takes her own hair and she applies the ointment to Jesus' feet. Now, in the midst of this act of worship, Judas gets involved and he says something to Mary. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, here's the thing. We've got to understand the level of gift that Mary has just given. 300 denarii represents one year of a person's annual wage. I mean, she's just dumped that all over Jesus' feet. You can kind of see why Judas is asking the question, but then we get this little side note about Judas. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was sticking his hand in the money belt, spending it on himself. I want you to hear something very, very closely this morning. Rich people can look very religious. You got that? Rich people can look very religious. There's this whole 
heart conversation going on in a person's heart that you and I can't see. The rich person is asking the question, how much do I have to give? The generous heart is asking, how much do I get to give? You know, the religious person creates this sanctimonious formula when it comes to money. They, they have this system in place where it's like, okay, well, here's how you be really, really spiritual in the eyes of other people. If you give to X, that makes you better than the people who give to Y. What are they doing with giving? They're reducing it down to a box that you can check. They're shutting off the brain. They're saying, I can create a formula to make myself look good instead of actually being good and wanting to give from the heart. Jesus rebukes Judas. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor person you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. In other words, Judas, throw your boxes out the window. I don't care about the boxes that you want to check. You're not going to reduce giving down to a formula. Oh, I write checks to missions, or I give to the poor, or whatever you think is spiritual. And then I can just go and live my life however I want to live my life. You know, the thing about religion that is so insidious is it is happy to keep you comfortable even as you are drifting away from Jesus. And that's scary. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he says, if you could just have a good job, a good wife, husband, a couple of good kids, a nice car, long weekends, a few good friends, a fun retirement, quick and easy death, and no hell? Would that satisfy you? In other words, he's saying to us there is so much more for this life and if you reduce it down to that, here's what you're doing with your life. You're becoming a sponge that's just being spiritually swept along. You are wasting your life. He says, aim higher. Jesus, of course, wanted more for us. He wanted us to radically trust him with our lives. Why? Because he created us and he knows what makes us tick. And Jesus knows this. When you love him with your money, when you love him with your time, when you love him with your plan, when you love him with your hopes, when you love him with your career, and guess what? You can't reduce it down to any one of those things. It's all of those things at the same time. He knows that you will be at your best and that you will experience more joy and satisfaction. And guess what? Mary blazes the trail for us in John 12. She gives him her best. So if loving money is the worst financial decision in human history, loving Jesus is always the best 
financial decision in human history. I believe that the kinds of gifts that matter in the kingdom of God are gifts that are given by faith and from the heart. How do I know what a kingdom gift looks like? Well, again, I can't answer that question because I think the way you spend money is crazy. But I will say this. You know it when you see it. You know, I've been having some fun conversations with people as they've just been sharing their heart with me. Uh, one guy in our church, he has a great sense of humor. He said, what am I going to do with my money? Like buy a yacht and then not be able to f afford the gas to drive it? And I just think that's a great statement because he's choosing to not be rich. He wants to be wealthy towards the things of the kingdom of God. A couple of people have just said to me things like, you know, I'm retired, but I've taken on this little part-time job, and I'm going to give that to the things of God. Uh, another person said, I'm just going to defer some things around my house that I don't have to do right now. I can live with. I'm just going to do that. One person was talking about stored resources and a little older, and he was looking at his life, and he was like, you know, how do I want to kind of like complete my life? And I don't want my story to be a story where I'm just amassing more and more assets. I want to divest those assets, and I want to put them into the work of the kingdom of God. Uh, one person said this, I have never given a gift to God that I didn't have to trust him to get to that gift. Um, in other words, it was always bigger than that person believed that they could achieve through their just kind of natural conventional wisdom. And they said, I've been walking with God for decades. I've been giving in that way, and he has never let me down, not once. You remember that quote from Hudson Taylor last week? Impossible difficult, done. I want to see a generation of Christians who love Jesus that way. You know what I find about these kingdom gifts from God? He puts things on our heart. Thinking about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, that is actually a dangerous verse because that verse tells me when I give that I actually have to have a conversation with Jesus about it. And what happens is God changes the heart along the way. I move from a space of reluctance and compulsion to a place of joy. The kingdom of God is filled with prayers like that. It's a place of creativity. When you think about our story, everybody's giving story is going to sound different because Jesus is going to say different things to each person. And that's what's so joy-filled about it. It's also a story of generosity. It's a story of sacrifice. It's a story where I say, I believe in this God so much so that a, a small gift on my part now can be multiplied like the loaves. 
and he can multiply it, and he can advance it for his kingdom purposes. Church, if God's putting it on your heart to participate in this, I just want to say, above everything, those are the kind of prayers I want to challenge us to pray. And I would love it if you would tell me your stories. I don't care what you're giving. That's not a big deal to me. What I care about is your heart. Why is God moving you? What is he doing in your heart? Let me pray for us. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, we're going to pray a daring prayer. I'm going to pray this prayer on behalf of my church family here, (laughs) myself first amongst us. Move in our hearts, lead, guide us, motivate us to a place of joy. Let us be the kind of people who love you with our money. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.